So today we come to our penultimate um, study in the book, out of the book of James. And because, you know, you can only use that word so many times, you've got to slip it in when you can. So that's, that's your word of the day. Um, so penultimate, there you go. That's what I paid a lot of money in college for. <laughs> Um, but anyways, turn with me to James chapter 5. We'll continue on verses 13 to 18 this morning. Uh, turn there together and we will see what James is instructing believers today. Uh, and as you get there, you know, what do you, what do you make of prayer? When we talk about praying, uh, when we talk about prayer, what does it mean? Uh, you know, is it something perfunctory? Is it something that we just do, uh, in various situations like before a meal? Uh, right. Maybe we use the old the old rhyme. Uh, God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for this food. Because you, know, you got to rhyme it. Uh, or you might say God is good. God is great. Let us let us thank him for this plate. That's a better rhyme. But anyways, that one I got. That one's an R.C. Sproul one there. Said his mom would would always say good to rhyme with food. Food and good. Uh, anyways, but but is that is that all it is, right? Is it just this these little sayings that we do? You know, it we we sometimes recite the Lord's prayer. Do we do we just do that as a you know as kind of a magical incantation? Uh, is prayer something of a of a conversation with God, or is it a convert? Is it are we talking to God? Like are we just talking at God? Is it meaningful or meaningless? Uh, and you probably know it's something that you ought to do, right? It, as, as long as you've been a Christian, uh, you've probably heard this encouragement. You need to pray, and you need to pray often and pray without ceasing, right, as Paul tells us. And you maybe perhaps feel guilty because you don't pray as often as you think you should, right? There's a certain level in your mind of prayer that you feel that you should have, and you don't meet up to it, and so maybe you feel a little guilt about that. Or perhaps the only time you ever really pray is when we come together as a church. And that's, that's the experience of your prayer in a week. And what should you expect of prayer? Right? What, what should you expect out of prayer? What should you expect to happen? Uh, is God a, a magic genie? So if you pray to him, he has to give you what you ask. Or is, is this, a matter in which we can never change the mind of God, and so prayer is more about changing our mind about things. Uh, and those are some ways that people have described prayer. Um, is prayer a simple salve for us, or is it something entirely different? Uh, we do know that the Bible calls us to pray, right? That That is something that uh, is stated, right? What, what I said, uh, what Paul wrote, pray without ceasing, always pray. Right, we know that we're directed and taught how to pray in the in the Bible. In Luke's gospel, for instance, we have this scene out of Luke 11, uh, verse 1. You know, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Right. Teach us to pray. And Jesus goes on from there to uh, give the Lord's prayer in Luke's gospel. Well, as we come to our passage today, we are dealing with this issue of prayer. If you couldn't tell by, by all this talk of prayer, I could, I guess, have done that and then said now for something entirely different. 
but no, we, we're discussing this issue of prayer. And James doesn't answer all these questions for us, right? So I just opened up a lot of questions, a, a bevy of questions for us, and I'm probably not going to answer half of them. Uh, but that's something I want you to begin turning in your mind over. Because today we're going to come to James and we're going to see this issue of prayer. And we find that he instructs us that powerful prayer is the purview of God's people. Powerful prayer is the purview of God's people. In other words, that James tells us that God's people are to be praying in a powerful way. So that tells us something about the answer to some of those questions that I did ask. But let's turn to our passage now. Let's let's see this out of James chapter 5, verses 13 to 18. And this is the word of the Lord. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. And this is the word of the Lord. So, again, remember, James has been calling all along in this letter for the church to remain steadfast, to be steadfast in the Lord. He wants them to stand amidst the various trials of life. Right? Go back to uh, James 1-2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. How do we count it all joy? Well, part of what we're we're talking about today is intersects with that how do we count it all joy well we pray we seek god Uh, we seek the lord god in the midst of the trials of life we may face we go to god and that is so vital so let's turn to our passage and first see the purpose of prayer i want to see that in verses 13 and 14 the purpose of prayer so as james is closing his letter here and something of note in um, commentators note about typical Greek letters is that they end with a wish for health. Typically, they end with some kind of wish for health. And we kind of see that here in our passage, right? That, that there's James is taking kind of this form uh, that is secular, and he's making it Christian, right? He's, he's casting it uh, in, in theology, But as he closes this letter, he does so with some encouragements here. And he first he calls out to those who are suffering, right? He says, is anyone among you suffering? And now this suffering is not illness because he gets to that in a little bit. But this suffering is those who suffer misfortune or those who are afflicted. These are the trials of life that cause pain of various kinds, whether that's uh, personal pain or physical pain, right? Actual pain or or, uh, personal pain. And Paul writes, for instance, to Timothy, using this word for suffering and affliction, just so we get an idea of the cast of this word. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9. 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering. 
bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Right? Paul says, Timothy, for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I am suffering. And how is Paul suffering? Well, he's in prison. He's bound in chains. He's treated as a criminal. We know that the end of Paul's life is something like he will be brought before uh, the, the emperor and sentenced to death. Right? So Paul suffers. That's the kind of suffering we're talking about. Things that are misfortune. Although I don't like that word misfortune uh, or the word fortunate or for misfortune because uh, they come from uh, the, the Greco-Roman gods, fortune. And so this idea that uh, if fortune smiles on you, right, we've heard that kind of phrase before. It's because the God fortune, uh, the God fortuna, she looks on you with happiness and she blesses you. And if she frowns at you, right, it's a bad thing. We could talk about fortune's wheel, which is not the right, the wheel of fortunes where we get that in our modern. But it's literally this idea that you're on a wheel and sometimes you're at the top and things are good. And sometimes you're at the bottom of the wheel and you're being crushed under it. Right. But that's not the scripture. Right. That's not how God speaks. Um, so uh, we use those words and take them or leave them. But this is suffering. Right. This is this is hardship. And what do we do in suffering? What do we do when we're under hardship? What do we do when we're afflicted? What would James tell Paul to do while he's bound in prison? Let him pray. Right? In contrast, one commentator kind of points this out, right? James is not calling us to be Stoics. Right? To kind of say, oh, I'm under this suffering and I'm just going to resign myself to it and, and I'm just going to say nothing, do nothing, and I'm just going to exist. And I'm, right, I'm going to have like this Zen-like moment of I'm just going to bear it. No, what does James tell us to do? Does James just say, just ignore the suffering that you're in? No, he says, cry out to God. Go to God in prayer. Pray to him. He calls us to go before the God of all grace, right? Hebrews 4.16. I go back to it over and over again because it's such a vital verse for us to understand. When we are in need, where do we go? Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So if you're in a situation in which you need grace, go to the throne of grace. When you, If you need mercy, go to the God of all mercy. Pray to Him, seek Him, ask Him. When you're afflicted, when you're suffering, pray. Right, And we can approach the throne of grace with confidence or with boldness, not because we're arrogant, not because we have the right, but as that passage makes clear there, because we have our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who died for us, who shed his blood for us, standing beside the throne, beckoning us to come forward to it. We have a mediator standing and saying, come to God, come to the Father, come to the throne of grace. God loves to hear from his children. He is not exasperated or annoyed. As parents, sometimes we get exasperated or annoyed with our children. No, it never happens. They're always perfect angels, right? 
right? Sometimes we get exasperated and annoyed, but God is never like that. When, when, he come, when we come to him, he does not turn from us, but he turns towards us. So for the one suffering, go to God. Don't just resignedly sit back and say, oh, this is my lot in life. This is my misfortune. Rather seek him who can change the situation, right? Because you may not be in control. You may not be able to affect change in that issue. But the God who is omnipotent can, right? The God who can do all things can, so trust in him. James continues, is anyone cheerful? Is anyone in good spirits? Is anyone happy? What, what should such a person do? Sing praise. And there are seasons in life in which we do have many blessings, right? There are seasons in life when we can smile at the circumstances we find ourselves in. We're not suffering. Uh, rather, we are in, in blessing. And to this one, if this is you, sing praise to God. Praise God for that. Right? Colossians 3.16 tells us, Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Listen to this, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Right? That's something for all of us to do as a church. But especially, James says, for those who are cheerful, for those who are happy, those who are in the midst of a season of blessing, do it all the more. And here's one of the important reasons. Also, notice there in Colossians, James tells us to do that towards one another, right? One of the things that we're doing, for instance, when we sing hymns, uh, when we sing here together as a church, it's not just that we're offering Praise to God, although we are doing that. That's one of the predominant things that we're doing, right? One of the predominant reasons. But more than that, we are also singing to one another, which is a good reason to let your voice be heard. Right? Don't just mumble. Don't just mumble peanut butter watermelon. Right? You, when you sing, you also sing to one another. And what does that do? That brings encouragement. That stirs one another up to love and to good works. Listen, you may be cheerful, but the person sitting next to you may not be cheerful. And they may need to hear a cheerful voice sing, God, how great thou art. God, you have amazing grace, right? We, we need that. So we bring the sacrifice of praise. We will rejoice and be glad in him. And remember James 1.17, James 1.17, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Right, so if you have good in your life, it comes from God. And so it behooves you then to go to God and to sing Him praise. So praise God from whom all blessings flow. And make sure, brothers and sisters, that you do not end up like those faithless Israelites of old. Because when they enjoyed the fatness of the land, the fatness of the land of promise, what did they do? They turned from God. They said, ah, oh, look at, look at all that I have, I have accomplished. Look at all that I have done. And yet they wouldn't have had a, a single acre of that land were it not the hand of God, uh, to give it to them. 
James continues again, and he says, So is anyone suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? And again, this is uh, issues of illness. And there are some scholars that take this word, because this word can mean, this word sick, can mean something like a spiritual sickness or a spiritual unhealth. And some scholars do take this to what James is talking about as a kind of uh, a, a spiritual remedy. But every other commentators point out that every time that you see this word in the Gospels, for instance, it's always used about physical health. And so I think James is pulling from that tradition and not this idea of spiritual unhealth. So all that to say is when we see sick here, we really do mean those who are sick, those who have illness of body, those who have some, some physical malady. And we might ask, well, what kind of sickness? Well, what's probably in view here is something quite serious. It's a serious sickness. Because notice that in verse 14 it says, let him call the elders. In other words, let him send for the elders and, and bring them to, to this sick person. Why is that? Because the sick person can't go to the elders. Right? So it's a serious enough illness that the sick person needs the elders to come to them and not they go to the elders. So, again, this is a sick person. It's probably a severe. And, and the idea is, right, that it is severe enough that it needs divine aid to be helped. Right? For there to be recovery, they need divine help. And probably what's in view here, too, uh, is that this issue of sickness is either something from the hand of God, that is, God has designed and given this sickness, or it is something from the hand of the evil one. Uh, the evil one has worked this sickness. Uh, so, so all that to say, it's a serious illness, and it probably has something supernatural at its root. Right? This isn't just a simple cold where we know in a couple days we'll feel bad, but in a couple days we're going to be good. This is something a little bit more serious than that. And again, just so that we, we understand this right, we know Satan has some authority given to him to afflict mankind. Uh, Job, for instance, Job 2.7. Uh, Job 2.7, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Right, so Satan can afflict the body of man. And two, we know that God, God sometimes allows illness and, and uh, disciplines us with illness uh, to grow fruit of righteousness in us. And we could look at Hebrews 12 and, and remember there that uh, God says that he disciplines those whom he loves. And God will use whatever method of discipline will effectuate uh, what he desires to see in his people. So, let us note first, we have a sick person. Secondly, he's to call for the elders. So who is he calling? Not Ghostbusters, right? But the elders of the church. These are the pastors of the local church. Um, and why elders? Does this mean like if someone calls you up and say, hey, will you pray for me? You say, no, nah, I'm not an elder. I can't pray for you, man. Uh, no, it's not that. Uh, but but we shouldn't, we shouldn't take this to mean that you cannot pray for those who are seriously ill. But rather, the elders have a special duty. They have a special responsibility to that end. Uh, they are perhaps, and this is not definitively so, so I'm not saying that uh, this is always the case, but they are perhaps 
better equipped to handle such cases. They understand uh, the, the right uh, if the elder, the pastor who has studied, knows God's word, can apply that word in the situation of the one who is ill. So maybe they can help uh, help do that uh, in a, in a special way, in a better way. But again, not definitively. The third thing we note, right? What are the elders to do? Uh, They are to go and they are to pray over him. They are to pray over him, right? They are to pray for the sick person. They are to entreat God for his mercy and grace. They are to seek the Lord and pray to him. And what else are they to do? Well, they are to anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, there is much discussion here. Uh, the scholars have much discussion about what does this mean? What is this anointing the sick? Uh, and there are various options. But likely what, what's in view here, the one that I that is most compelling to me, is that this is something like setting the person apart to the Lord. So, for instance, we see this in the Old Testament, right? When a priest is uh, appointed or when a king is appointed, right, what happens? They're anointed with oil. So I take this, this anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord is something like that. Uh, so in other words, it's, it's not an act of magic, right? This isn't part of a magic spell. And it's not an act of giving medicine. Uh, because there are some who think that this oil that is in reference here is actually medicinal in purpose. And I don't think it's that either. Uh, maybe it would help, but uh, if you have some dry skin, it'd be great, right? Uh, but but I don't think it's predominantly medicinal. Uh, what what I think we do have here, though, is this is giving someone over to the Lord. This is saying this person is especially set apart to the Lord. And James may have in view, so why James kind of gives us this and he doesn't give us something else, he may have in view the practice of the disciples of Jesus during uh, during Jesus's earthly ministry. For instance, in Mark 6.13, in Mark 6.13, it says, And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Mark 6.13. So the idea being that there was something to it in the practice of Jesus' ministry. And now that's uh, translated forward into the practice of the early church. But of course, the big question in all of this uh, because I don't know about you, but I have, in in my time, I have never uh, seen this practice by other pastors. And I have also never had anyone call me up and say, would you come anoint me with oil and pray over me? So the question is, the big question is, right, is this something we should practice today? Is this something that we should see today? If you are on uh, your, what feels like your deathbed, should you give me a ring up and say, would you come pray for me? Um, there are some Reformed expositors, especially Luther and Calvin, for instance, uh, who would argue that this ought be a dead practice, that, it's, that it was a, limited to the time of the apostles, so that this is not something ongoing within the church, but is something descriptive of something that happened in the church. And in asking that why they rejected that, I think we really have to ask, well, what is the context in which they lived? What, how did they live? Because part of what has happened with this passage is the Roman Catholic Church has taken this and turned it into a sacrament 
uh, which we, you, which you may have heard of, or at least you've seen in like TVs or movies, perhaps, of extreme unction or last rites, right, where the priest comes on the deathbed and gives them final communion. Um, so that is a practice that is not described here, right? Because it doesn't say that. It doesn't say come to them on their deathbed and give them a last go. Because what is the outcome expected of this prayer? We'll see that in uh, the next verses, but it's that there's healing. So it's not the final prayer, right? It's not the final final act, uh, but it's something that uh, entreats God for mercy and they are healed. So I think part of the reasoning of the reformers, right, from their vantage point, is that this is a practice that should be dead because the practice as informed by the Roman Catholic Church abuses it, corrupts it. So I think it may well be that they reacted against this wrong practice within the church. They had to fight and argue against many such wrong practices. But what about us today? Well, if we're not giving it the significance of a sacrament like the Roman Catholic Church, so if we're not making it into something that it that rises to the level of what we do in the Lord's Supper or in baptism, because those are the only two all right, what we might call sacraments that we believe that God gave the church, right? So this isn't something, this is something extraordinary, not ongoing. And sacraments are something ongoing, right? They happen regularly. So this is something extraordinary. If we're not treating it like the Roman Catholic Church says, then really what we're amounting, what this discussion is about, is about prayer. Right? Because really what we're talking about here is prayer. And really James's point is the prayer, not the anointing of oil. So if we ask it in this way, should we pray today? Well, yes. Should we pray for the sick? Should we pray for those when we we encounter who are in dire need? Yeah. Should the sick call up their pastor and ask them to pray for them? Yes, right? Those are all pretty simple questions. And so what we need to see and what we need to understand, right, is that this oil is not a healing ointment. It's not part of a magic spell. And we should let it signify that which it is, setting apart that person to the tender mercy of God. And so then we pray to our compassionate God and seek his mercy. And then we see the power of prayer. And I want us to see that next in verses 15 and 16, the power of prayer. And again, we might be tempted to get hung up on the anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. But notice in verse 15, what James says works. What is it that accomplishes something? Verse 15 says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. It's the prayer of faith. It's not the anointing with oil. But it's the prayer of faith. And again, let us remember, so is this the prayer of the person who is sick? No, it's the prayer of the elders. So the prayer of faith is the prayer of the elders. They're the ones offering the prayer. As they entreat God for his mercy, God is merciful. And notice that this is prayer of faith. And now we have to deal with this issue because we, uh, there are many. There are those churches and so-called churches even in our own community who would take something like this in the prayer of faith and they would say that 
anything you pray to God and you believe that you have it, you will have it. Or they will say things, and perhaps they will say it uh, to the person, you don't have your healing, you don't have what you want, because you don't have enough faith. And so is that what we're to take of this? Is, that, is this what we're to say? that that right? Because James uses strong language, he says the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Should we believe then that if whatever we pray to God and we really believe that that's going to happen? No. I don't think that's the context of what James is talking about here. I don't, I don't believe that the prayer of faith is the prayer of foolishness. I think that that's this idea that God is magic genie who must bow to our whim. That's foolishness, right? It's evil. The prayer of faith recognizes God's sovereignty over all things. That's what the prayer of faith is. Right, It's trusting in God, and it's saying to God, I believe that you can do this. I understand you may not do this, but it is my desire, it is my earnest desire to see this outcome. Right? Do, do we get those three components? I believe you can do this. I understand you may not, but it's my desire that you would. The prayer of faith recognizes that God's will may actually be different than what we're praying for. Consider, for instance, Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 and 9, or 7 through 9. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. Listen to the experience of Paul here. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So let's stop here and think about this situation. Do we think that the Apostle Paul did not have enough faith that he did not believe that God could heal him? That God could remove this thorn in his, in his flesh. Right? Of course we believe that Paul could have enough faith to be healed. But Paul comes to understand, right? God reveals to Paul the reason for this thorn is that his grace might be made perfect in Paul. And notice too, he says here, uh, maybe notice the trajectory of Paul's life. He says it was to keep me from becoming conceited. Paul would have been proud. He would have been a prideful wretch were it not for this thorn in the flesh. Notice that. This, this thorn, this suffering that Paul endured was a grace and a mercy of God for him. And I can tell you, I don't know that we often think of suffering or bodily illness as grace or mercy. But Paul says that that's what that was for me. And we don't know exactly what his thorn was, but there's speculation maybe it was something to do with his eyes, his eyesight. God had mercy on Paul and allowed the, the messenger of Satan to harass him, to keep him from becoming conceited. We remember that God works all things together for good for those that love him and keep his command. 
And never forget that, beloved, that the, that the prayer of faith includes the possibility, especially in the case of a severe illness, it includes the possibility of death. The prayer of faith understands and trusts in God above all things. But James here gives us in our passage, right, the positive outcome of this prayer of faith, right? The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Uh, and the sick person is made well, in other words. And there's, right, this language is a little a little different to us. And, and again, some of the language here is why some scholars say that Paul's talking about a spiritual illness rather than a physical illness. Uh, but but we see this as what it is, right? It, James is dealing with physical illness, and he says it will save the one who is sick. The, the person who is sick uh, will be made well, and he will be raised up by the Lord. And notice that again too, right? And the Lord will raise him up. Who heals the sick person? The Lord. Is it the prayer of the elder that saves the sick person? No, it's the Lord who does it. But God does use means, and he uses the means of the prayers of others to accomplish his will. It's the Lord. And more than that, see see the end of verse 15 there. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And in this we must realize, especially in this culture, much less so today. And t- today, right, we have uh, so much medical science that we, that we take uh, illness and we understand its root cause, right? And so we say, well, I had, um, I was sneezing because there's allergens and my body overreacts to them and that's why I'm sneezing, right? That, so we, we come to this scientific understanding. But James lives in a culture that understands that sometimes the issue of uh, sickness is related to sin, right? Sickness is related to sin. We have to realize that there was a close link between these two, especially in the minds of the early church. Uh, We know it was true in the minds of the disciples. Go to John chapter 9, for instance, John 9, and look at verses 1 to 3. John 9, 1 to 3. And as he passed by, that is Jesus, he saw man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind, right? So let's just pause there and say, right, the the understanding, the idea is this person's blind, they have an illness, and it must be because of sin. Maybe they sinned, maybe his parents sinned, and this was judgment upon them. But Jesus answered, so Jesus replies, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Right, so, so Jesus says it's not about it's not a sin issue per se, it's a glory issue. He's here for the glory of God. Jesus makes clear in this instance, right, the blind man is not suffering because of sin or his parents' sin. And the book of Job makes that clear too, right? Job suffers not for sin. Job suffers and he is blameless and upright. But sometimes, right, so so that's we have to understand there are exceptions. But sometimes there is a link. Sometimes illness, sickness, does come into a person's life because of sin. Sometimes it's an harassment by the devil, but sometimes it's the discipline of God. Sometimes it's the judgment of God. 
And to that one, to the one that is suffering under the judgment of God for their sins, the punishment of their sins, they can be assured. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. That as they go to God uh, and as they entreat God for mercy and grace, they receive mercy and grace, both physical healing and also spiritual healing. They have total healing, right? Body and soul. And James continues to tell us about the power of prayer in verse 16. Therefore, right? Therefore, and when we see that, right, it's he's concluding something, right? Therefore, because you can be healed, because you can receive forgiveness of your sins, do this. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed, right? Because you can be healed by God, both body and soul, by the confession of sin, by seeking him in prayer, do it. And we may somewhat balk at James's command here to confess our sins to one another, but we have to realize that there is power in doing so. We need to confess our sins to one another. Do we need to confess our sins to God first and foremost? Absolutely. Right? As, as David says in Psalm 51, against you and you alone have I sinned. And that was after his sin with Bathsheba, uh, when he, uh, had an adulterous relationship with her, and then he sent, uh, her husband off to be killed. And if you remember that there was collateral damage when Uriah is killed, so are other of his troops. So did David only sin against God? Well, no, for like unpacking that situation, no. he sinned against Bathsheba. He sins, sinned against the people of Israel. He sinned against uh, Uriah. He sinned against those other troops who died. He sinned against his leaders, his commanders, who who he made put these troops into a perilous situation. Right there is a lot of collateral damage in David's sin. But David understands, right, that first and foremost, he sinned against God. That the greatest offense he gave was not to his fellow man, but to his God, his Lord God. And so, too, we have to understand that, right? When we confess our sins, we go to God. But there is also power in confessing our sins to one another. Because sometimes we might have what we call besetting sins or habitual sins. These are the sins that always dog us, that always seem to be our back, the sins that we can't seem to get rid of, the sins that we go to again and again and again. Maybe it's an issue of lust. Maybe it's an issue of anger. Maybe it's an issue of gossip. And we can find power in the confession of our sins to one another because sin thrives in the dark. Sin loves when you keep silent. Why? Because sin is like a cockroach. Doesn't like the light. Scurries from it. It knows it will be found out. Uh, it knows it will be shown to be the grotesque, uh, the grotesque caricature that it is when it is exposed to light. So it's good to confess our sins to one another, uh, to find another faithful brother or sister in Christ to, to confess our sins to so they can pray for us, that they can encourage us, that they can admonish us, right, warn us. And in my own life, I've experienced the power of confessing my sins to another and, and seeing the power of what that can do in fighting against those sins to defeat them. 
So if you find yourself in a place where you're up against the same old sins, failing in the same old way, uh, I encourage you to find someone you can trust and confess your sins to. Uh, whether that's a church member here, whether that's your spouse, whether that's someone outside of this church fellowship. Do it. Go and do it. Don't let fear, don't let the fear of losing your sin keep you from the grace of God. So confess and pray. Pray for one another, right? We should be praying for one another. Pray for one another. To what end? That you may be healed, right? That you may experience wholeness of body and of spirit. And note that these are not commands for the elders alone, right? But for one another, to one another, for one another, right? These are commands for all of us in the church to be about. These are community commands. The whole of the church is to be involved in this confession and prayer. And then we come to one of the more famous verses, I think, or famous phrases within the book of James, right? The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working, or in uh, King Jamesian, right? The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person availeth much. Powerful prayer is the purview of the people of God. And we may object here and say, right, this says the prayer of a righteous person. Well, that's not a problem because I'm not a righteous person. So that's not me. This isn't me. And we may confess that maybe other people have that power in their prayers, but we don't. Well, let's lastly see the precedent of prayer, the precedent of prayer in verses 17 and 18. James gives us an example. And he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Right, we may repeat our refrain and say, well, my righteousness is as filthy rags. And yes, that is true. But consider Elijah. Consider this man of God. He was a man with a nature like ours. And when we consider Elijah, what do we think of? Uh, we probably think of this powerful prophet who did all sorts of miracles, right? We probably think of this powerful prophet, this powerful man of God who does all these wonders. He's a great man of God. Well, and that means that he is decidedly not like us. But James' point is, right? James says, yes, he may have done wonders. Yes, he may have done miracles. And here's one of them. He prayed that it not rain and it didn't for a period of time, for a period of judgment. And then he prayed and it rained again. What's his point? James is saying he has a nature like ours. Elijah is our example to pray with faith, knowing that God can and will overcome our natural limitations. He will overcome our sin to effectuate his will. Because here's the reality. Elijah was a sinner. He sinned as any other. We could, for instance, go back and and study how he despaired of his own life when he considered the strength of his enemies. And at that moment, we might ask the question, was Elijah this great man of faith? And we would be hard-pressed to say yes, right? We would say no, he was hardly a great man of faith. He was a man with a nature like ours. And what did he do? He prayed fervently, or he prayed earnestly. Uh, it, it's, it seems to be kind of a Jewish construction here, because in the Greek, it's literally, he prayed prayer. He prayed with prayer. What's that, what's that mean, right? He, he prayed, prayed. He prayed fervently. He prayed and God acted. He prayed and the rain stopped, right? He prayed again and it started to rain again. And all this, by the way, comes out of 1 Kings 17 and 18. 
I will note here that we don't actually have in the narrative there in 1 Kings that Elijah prayed to make the rain stop. We see that God stops the rain. We do see where Elijah prays to make the rain uh, come again. Uh, and that's in 1 Kings 18.42 we see that. It says he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. So Elijah is this example. He's this precedent for the kind of prayer that James is talking about here. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and yet he prayed powerful prayers. And your prayer can effectuate much. Why? Because the Lord loves and cares for you. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So James writes to the church, reminding them of the powerful nature of prayer, because prayer is integral to the Christian walk, right? So if you're suffering and afflicted, pray. And if you're cheerful, pray, right? Sing praise. Pray to God and praise Him. And if you're in illness, and maybe even severe illness, pray. Seek the mercy and grace of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what do you have need of? What is your need today? And I would encourage you, go to the Lord and entreat entreat of Him. Go to His throne of grace with the confidence of a child of God and say, Lord God, I need your grace And I need your mercy, and it's my time of need. Go to him without hesitation, for he loves to hear from his children. And if you're in desperate need, go to him all the more. And if uh, if in such a situation, call others to go along with you, to come alongside of you, and to entreat God. Go to him in confession. Confess your sins to one another. and, And in so doing, you may well find the healing of your body and your soul. The prayer of a righteous person availeth much. And you may protest again and say, well, there is none righteous, no, not one. Well, does that mean that our prayers will never amount to anything? No, right, James reminds us that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was sinful, he struggled, he even doubted God's plan for him, and yet God listened to him. God acted for his glory, for the good of his people. God listens and acts. And throughout the scriptures, we have the promise of God that he will hear when we pray. Powerful prayer is the purview of God's people. Don't forget that, beloved, and don't grow weary. Don't forsake him who will never forsake you. Now, none of this means that the trials of life will suddenly vanish or may never bother you. But what you should find is what the psalmist confessed in Psalm 86, 7. Psalm 86, 7. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. We're sometimes hard-pressed, I think, to find people in which that is true, right? That we can call upon them whenever we we need and that they will answer. Uh, Sometimes we may know people who we know not to call because if we tried, they would never answer anyways, right? But in God, in the day of our trouble, in any day, he answers. So call upon the Lord. Call out to him. 
Confess your sins to one another and be healed. Seek his righteousness. Rest in the promises of God, which are all yes in Christ Jesus. But some of you don't have this hope. Some of you have no basis of hope because you are mired in your sin, right? You are stuck in your sin. And in the evilness of your heart, you can expect no good thing. In the evilness of your ways, you can expect only the wrath of God against those who have committed treason against his holiness. And what remains for you, friend, is not health and healing, the Lord raising you up, salvation, eternal life. What remains for you is eternal judgment. And unless you turn to God, unless you turn to Christ Jesus and call upon him, unless you confess your sins and pray to God for healing, not just for your physical body, but for your soul. And unless you ask God to change you and give life to your dead spirit, uh, you will die in such a manner. But if you ask him that you would be born again of the spirit, he will birth the spirit in you. He will have already birthed the spirit in you. Confess your sins and turn from them. Repent and turn to God. And then you have hope for healing. And then you have all the promises of God for your good, the blessings of God, the glories of heaven to come. And then you will see the powerful prayer of the people of God. So turn to Christ today. Trust in him. Look unto him and believe the good news of his grace. Let's pray. O great Father in heaven, you who are exalted in every way, you who are good and perfect, you who are merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, to you, O Lord God, we come and we lift up to you those things that weigh on us this morning. Father, we lift up to you those concerns of our soul, those those issues uh, that we are dealing with. And Father, whether that is the issue of the need of our soul for the grace of of Christ to be uh, to be brought and to be made true in us, or Father, whether we're dealing and struggling with with sickness and illness and bodily uh, bodily problems, whether we're suffering affliction of difficult circumstances at home or at work, Father, whatever our situation, whatever our needs may be this morning, we come and we want to lift them to you. And Father, for those who are of a cheerful disposition, those of us who have experienced your blessing and the goodness that you have for us, Father, we also want to come and sing praise to you and lift up, lift up your, your name and glorify your name. Father, we pray uh, that you would help us to see the truth of your word. That we would see the power of prayer for what it is. God, that we would pray in faith, entrusting our very lives unto you, because our lives are in your hand. And so, Lord, we pray. And we pray this in the name of he who is our blessed Savior, your Son, Jesus. Amen.